This is the Scripture Study Project. We are your hosts, Krista and Zach Horton, and this is our podcast where we study Scripture with you. Each episode, we help you discover new or renewed excitement for God and His Word. Invest your heart and personal life into your study and connect with others as you teach and learn together. All right, welcome back to the Scripture Study Project. This is take like 25 of starting this episode. <laughs> I don't know if it's because we're doing it's monthly funny. episodes instead of weekly, but we cannot. You seem, you seem tired on take 18. Oh now it's 25. Gosh, so You're just tired. like, okay, this is take 25. And why was this so hard? I don't know. Starting a podcast episode is just, <laughs> it's always been hard for me. and It feels awkward. and But thank you all for listening out there in podcast land. Um, we're grateful for you. This month is, or this season, as you know, if you listened to the last episode, we're focusing on questions that are loosely connected to what we're studying in the New Testament, and we'll draw from our upcoming study a little bit to answer the questions. But really, it's just based on these kind of big, significant um, questions that either we have or that we've heard from some of you that have, have sent them to us or from friends that we talk to. And we want to spend some time uh, just studying these using the scriptures. The kind of idea behind this season was uh, we have a lot of big questions in the church and we can go to a lot of great sources, but the scripture, the, the project that we're focusing on is answering significant questions using the scriptures. So that's this season. This episode, we're, well, we've got one that we're actually really excited about that's been kind of in our minds and hearts for a couple of years yeah, this question was really significant for me this week as I studied for the upcoming scripture blocks in Come Follow Me, really for over the next couple weeks. Um, last month in Come Follow Me was a lot of a lot of the Sermon on the Mount, and we really learned about Jesus's teachings. I feel like that was kind of maybe if, if I were to say what the overarching theme of what we studied over the last few weeks it was about what Jesus wanted us to be and do. And in the this upcoming month, we're re- we really get to know Jesus and see what he's doing and his miracles. And the one that triggered for me this question that we're going to study this week comes from Mark chapter 2. And many of you know this story where Jesus, there's a man who needs to be healed and he's on a bed and he's lowered into this room or building that Jesus is in. And there's, he has to be put in that way because there's so many people there to see what Jesus is going to do. And Jesus does, he heals him. And then he tells him that he, his sins are also forgiven. And of course that causes an uproar, especially among the Pharisees saying, who, who is this man that he thinks he can do this? And what got me was this statement from Jesus in Mark chapter two, verse 10. And he says, that that I'm I'm doing these things and showing you these things that you may know that the Son of Man hath power to forgive sins. That word know, um, that we may know, made me just think of so many times where I've wanted to know or I've been searching to know and I've been maybe even told or thought that I needed to know. Um, I've been of course, thought back on Mark, on Moroni, the Book of Mormon scripture, where we are taught to, that we will know the truth of all things. Um, and given that, we, many of us know, right, this, the promise in Moroni chapter 10, verses 3 through 5, 
where that we're given that question to seek. And essentially, don't you think that's kind of maybe even the mission of our study this year is really to get to know Jesus Christ and who he is and what he's doing. So that's a great invitation. That's not a bad invitation at all. Um, And I'm excited about that part. But, and also I've had moments in my life where I have had moments where I felt a conviction, where maybe even I felt like I knew something. It's it's made me really reflect this week if I've thought of this idea of knowing and searching for truth, that I really have had experiences where I have felt this maybe sure knowledge or a knowing. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had experiences where, and not many of them, that's the interesting part too, right? Some mm-hmm. of these moments that we have where we really feel like a prayer is is answered in a strong way. Um, for me, it's come in a, I don't really know how to describe it, a, a feeling in my heart and mind, which I guess that's the only way to describe it, right? Um, but I've thought about what this really means to know and also the discomfort that I feel around the no, you know, quote unquote, no culture of, of our church. And maybe even that that common phrase that us children of the 90s from the church, and maybe even it's still around, that that we know the church is true. I've struggled a little bit with that, especially as I've heard my kids maybe start to say those things and thought, I don't think that's what I want to be teaching them, um, or want them to know or feel like they have the weight of knowing. Because I think there's been a time in my life where I've almost had to unpack that phrase for myself. Like, wait, I do not have to know that the church is true or at least have to say it in that way. Well, I remember feeling that in going to sacrament meetings sporadically as a teenager. But when I would go to those testimony meetings or when I'd hear it in seminary or uh, and people would start their testimony with that phrase, I, I know the church is true, I remember feeling really far behind um, that I didn't know the church was true. I didn't even know most of the things the church taught. And so it felt really distant for me. And um, and so I, I, I resonate with that. The, the pressure, as you said, of feeling like I have to say I know the church is true can and be I, difficult. Yeah, and I know that... I guess I wanted to talk about this part of knowing Jesus and knowing and understanding who he is, because I feel like that is an important part. Mm -hmm. But when we put this blanket statement over knowing the church is true, maybe that's where I feel like it's good to break it down. So all that being said, the question that we want to talk about and dissect this week is, do I have to know the church is true? And the answer, I think, <laughs> I, I even wrote this in, in our notes, is, well, there are some things we have to understand before we can give a clear answer to that question. Uh, we came up with at least three. Of course, in your study, you may find other things that help you understand your own response to this question. But I began my study looking back a little bit at where we left off last uh, month at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, there's the really well-known 
parable the Savior gives right at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7 about the wise man and the foolish man building their respective houses on rock or on sand. We even have a primary song about it. Best primary song ever. Yeah. (laughs) However, in the primary song and in our retelling, we skip perhaps the most significant part of the parable. You think of the primary song, the wise man built his house upon the rock. But if I were to ask you the question, what does that symbolize? We would probably pause because the primary song doesn't answer it and our common retelling doesn't answer it. I've asked people before and you know they'll say, well, you know, rock represents the gospel and so I'm building my house upon the gospel. That's not exactly what the Savior taught. This is Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. Listen to what building your house upon the rock symbolizes. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon the rock. And then verse 26. And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. In other words, the man that built his house upon the rock is the man or woman that does the gospel, that acts on what he or she hears. It's not just the hearing and maybe not even just the believing. It's the doing that makes a difference. In fact, that's strong if you read the way the the Savior explains his gospel to people. There's a heavy emphasis on doing. Um, Interesting, the sand... Uh, as I was studying this week, I didn't know this, but or I didn't think about this. But if you think of sand in uh, you know the deserts of the Middle East, this isn't um, blowing sand that's soft and it's not beach sand. It's hard, hard packed, hard caked sand. In other words, it seems like an okay place to build a structure because it feels really solid. Um, but it's not. Uh, hearing the gospel, believing the gospel, maybe even if we're to use this, the words of this question, simply knowing the gospel or seeking to only know the gospel is true is not a solid enough foundation upon which to build a house. I actually really like how, how Luke records this, um, whether it's the same sermon or a different sermon. Uh, in Luke chapter 6, verse 47 and 48, uh, the Savior says it this way, Whosoever cometh to me and heareth my sayings and doeth them, I will show you to whom he is like. He is like a man which built a house and digged deep and laid the foundation on a rock. In other words, uh, building a foundation, building on the rock requires some effort. You can't, if you're just going to listen and lay your house down on this seemingly hard-packed surface that might uh, seem to provide some kind of a foundation, It's not enough. In order to build on a strong foundation, you have to work, you have to act, and you have to get deep. And to those that are listening to the Savior in his modern or in his context, uh, the indictment of the current religious climate would have been probably pretty clear. The Pharisees prescribed a very outward, um, visible, um, verbal, agreement to the gospel. You had to say the right things. You had to listen to the right things. You had to be able to repeat the right things. It was a very surface level, crust level um, discipleship, if you will. And what the Savior is prescribing is something that goes far beyond just the listening and the hearing and the and the verbally assenting to someone that actually does something, that acts and follows and changes their own life and changes the lives of people around them. 
In other words, the gospel isn't something that we come to know. The gospel is something that guides what we do. So do you think we could reverse that and say that doing things helps us know? Or is that maybe where you, at the beginning when you said, well, yeah, <laughs> you know, I think this is one of those where if we ask the question, do I have to know the church is true? I think this answers the question to say that maybe we don't have to proclaim that. Or maybe it's not the first stop. I think, and maybe this is just me reflecting on my own understanding from from years past. I think I would have put the order of operations uh, for discipleship in being, okay, I, I listen to talk X, Y, or Z, or I learn principle A, B, or C. And before I do anything else, I have to pray really hard and have this burning in the bosom so that I can say, I know this is true. And then maybe the result is that I'll go out and do something. And what I have come to understand as I've studied, especially the, the gospel here in the New Testament, is that that order of operation should probably be reversed. I hear a teaching from the Savior, and the emphasis he gives is you go and do it. You may not know that it's true. Obviously, it requires a little bit of trust or confidence in him as the teacher. But before you know, you go and do. And as you do, then that leads to evidence or witness that comes to you that proves that this was good principle, good doctrine. It uh, led to happiness for me or peace for someone else or uh, a confirmation from the Spirit. But the doing comes first, followed by the knowing afterwards. Yeah, it's kind of like a Google review almost Yeah, that um, you're going to experience something, you're going to do something, and then you can give a report on it. And I guess part of that message is that when we do those things, it doesn't have to equal that we know something fully. And I think maybe it's just the semantics of knowing something so big is true that overwhelms or scares me about that question, but that as we do the small things, we slowly collect evidences or Google reviews that we're going to want to go back to these certain places and do these certain things. Yeah. You know, a good, great cross-reference for this is um, the epistle of James. Uh, in both chapters one and chapter two, he deals with this issue a lot. The, the famous line in chapter two is, uh, you know, verse 17 even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. But if you go back to chapter 1, it helps us understand what he actually means by that. Uh, this is chapter 1, starting in verse 22. Be therefore doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. And then he gives kind of a parable. He says, If any man be a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is like a man beholding his natural face in a glass, or looking into a mirror. For he beholdeth himself... And goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. In other words, you stand in front of a mirror, and you look at yourself, and you see something that needs adjusting. The simple beholding of yourself, the simple statement of saying, I now know that I have a pimple on my forehead, or that I need to comb my hair, isn't enough. If you just walk away from the mirror, you'll forget that knowing. You'll forget that image. The wise man is the one, or the man that has full faith is the one that sees himself and then adjusts so that uh, it, it becomes permanent. Verse 26, if any man among you seem to be righteous and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. 
pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction, and to keep himself unspotted from the world. In other words, true religion isn't saying, I know I should visit the windows, the widows and the fatherless. I have a testimony of service. It's to go and visit. It's to go and do service. So in chapter 2 then, when James says, faith without works is dead, what he means is simply, as, simply saying that I believe or I know without the actions that go along with it means that either your faith is dead or that it will die without the sustaining power of action to go along with it. I'm even just thinking of how Jesus was the epitome of exactly that, that so much of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the teachers of his day were just talking and they were just trying to essentially know things. And he was the example of exact opposite of that, of going about and doing these things. Don't you think? I think so. So I think the first thing we have to understand in order to get to this question is that knowing comes from doing, not the other way around. Get that order of operations right. And in relationship to this answer, number one, or explanation, number one, to this question, um, is number two, is that knowing comes from God doing things to or through us or allowing God to do things for us. And let's take it back to that scripture that I read in the beginning from Mark chapter 2, verse 10. Um, last time I, I talked about it, I t- focused on that knowing part, that you may know that the Son of Man hath power to forgive sins. Um, this is very much a doing action. He's saying, search and try and understand that I can also forgive sins. This is something that I can do for you. And that number two is that the action is that we need to allow God to help us forgive others or that we need to experience his forgiveness for ourselves. Is that how I would say that? (laughs) Yes, it's not just us doing things. It's us allowing him to do things to us or through us. It's opening ourselves up to God. touching us, healing us, forgiving us, working through us, which also bears, maybe bears an even more powerful review or witness um, that he's real and that he loves us. And those moments are equally as powerful um, because I know that those testimonies that come when we have felt, for me personally, and I'm, I'm sure I've shared this multiple times on the podcast, um, in seasons past, but just that really purifying, I don't know, whatever the feeling is where I've experienced times where I know that that forgiveness has not come from me. And I certainly will give a really strong review for the fact that 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 was something that happened to me, that I that I felt God in my heart and my life when I knew that me being able to forgive or to feel forgiven in those really powerful ways didn't feel human. It didn't feel like it was something that I could have done on my own. So what this does then, as we're talking about this, is it changes the way then that we bear testimony. Um, to your point of, of, of a Google review, 
I, I've been somewhere, I've done something, I've tasted something, and now I can talk from experience and say something that I know, even if all I know is what has happened to me or what's happened through me. Um, and so I'm picturing the way that this might change a testimony is instead of bearing a global testimony that I know the church is true or I know the gospel is true, not that those are incorrect necessarily or things that we can't say, I wonder if it would be more powerful to say, here is a gospel principle that I have practiced. I've done this. And when I did that, this was the result. This is what came because of it. For example, I have recently been working on prayer. Um, I've been listening to a lot of things that President Nelson has taught concerning prayer and the language of prayer. I was reading, I spent a lot of time in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, in the, the Lord's Prayer in the Sermon on the Mount uh, last week. And I've spent a lot of time in my own prayer practicing following the Savior's example and using that language. And I can bear testimony that... Uh, for me, paying attention to what I am saying and how I am saying things in prayer has made a significant difference in what I feel during prayer and in my ability to sense the thoughts and the feelings that are coming to me from God. Uh, now, that's a far way away from saying, I know the church is true, but I, I can bear testimony of that, those couple of principles of prayer. And because of that, by extension, I, my trust in the Savior and what he teaches about prayer increases. My confidence in the Lord's prophet and what he teaches about prayer increases. Therefore, my, my trust in them um, moves me forward. Well, Zach, I think your experience that you just explained really transitions perfectly to our our thought, I won't even say our answer number three, or our thought number three towards this question is that there is more than just knowing. Knowing, I think what I've come to dissect it as is that this is really a very broad blanket statement when we say that we know the church is true, that no one really knows the meaning of. Mm -hmm. <laughs> if you actually think about what we're saying, I don't think that makes sense at all. Um but there's so many different ways that we can actually explain how we feel about God, how we feel about Jesus Christ, how we feel about the gospel, even how we feel about the church, how we feel about the church leaders, or whether those be President Nelson, our prophet, or it's local leaders that have helped and influenced us or the people around us in some way. Um, but there's more than just saying that we know things. Because sometimes knowing, and I don't know, is it the age of so much quick knowledge at everyone's fingertips that we feel like maybe that's why the idea of knowing has become so heavy to me is like, I don't even want to know anymore. But what I do want to do is do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I want to experience these things. That doesn't change the fact that I want to feel and I want to grow closer to God and I want to experience the forgiveness and mercy and grace of Jesus Christ. Um but knowing things is maybe not as much what I'm interested in. Well, you know, that makes me think of um, Matthew chapter 8 in our study this upcoming month. Uh, there's a, a subtle, maybe not so subtle thing that Matthew calls out as he's narrating this story. Um, he, at the very beginning of Matthew chapter 8, points out that when Jesus comes down from the mountain, there's this great multitude of 
following him. And Matthew will use that word deliberately throughout his gospel to point out that Jesus had these groups of people following him. But there's a difference between this multitude that follows him. He mentions it again in verse 18. And those that his disciples that truly follow him. So verse 18, when Jesus saw the great multitude about him, he gave commandment to depart. And a certain scribe came and said to him, Master, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. Now that's more than just, I want to be where you're at. This is him saying, I want to be your disciple. Uh, The Greek word that's translated as disciple is learner. And it has a heavy connotation with it because uh, in the Greek world, um, you, if you chose to be a disciple of someone, you chose to follow them, live where they lived, ate what they ate, and completely seek to emulate them. Socrates had disciples. Aristotle had disciples. Um, and so when someone comes up to Jesus and says, I want to follow you, I want to be your disciple, this isn't just someone saying loosely, oh, I kind of believe what you're saying. This is someone that says, I am all in, I'm going to do everything. And so Jesus' response to this man is, well, let me tell you what that everything is. The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. In other words, if you're going to follow me, it means you're going to have to give up house and home. That's what it's going to take to follow me, to be my disciple. Another one comes and says, I'll follow you, but first let me go bury my father, which doesn't probably mean my father just died, let me go bury him. It means well, let me go spend time with my father first, with my aging father. Let me Give me a couple of years before I do this. And the Savior's response seems harsh. Let the dead bury their dead. But what his answer to this is, discipleship requires more than just saying you believe or you like. Uh, it requires following. And so then in verse 23, he enters into the ship and his disciples followed him. And what's interesting in this exchange in the ship um, is that they begin to see what it means to be a disciple of Christ. They even remark in verse 27, what manner of man is this? And this is the beginning of not just the ministry of Jesus Christ, but this intimate ministry that he has to these disciples where they come to really understand who he is. In fact, in chapter 10, when he calls them and gives them power and sends them out to teach, he says this to them, verse 24, the disciple is not above his master, nor the servant above his Lord. It is enough for the disciple that he be as his master and the servant as his Lord. In other words, uh, to be a disciple of Christ is to uh, follow him which sounds simple, but it means much more than just professing a knowledge. And if I was speaking to younger me, to teenage me, or even young adult me, maybe even missionary me to some degree, I think what I might say is um, focusing on gaining a testimony, feeling that something is true, is good. But that's not all. And it may not even be the first stop or the most important stop. Discipleship of the Savior means more than just knowing. And maybe that can adjust a little bit the way that we talk about our relationship with truth. Maybe there are uh, uh, things that we can say, things that we can do that expand our 
our relationship with the truth? I think that the scriptures give many examples of other ways to express ourselves and express our beliefs that maybe even sit right, sit more right in our hearts mm-hmm. is what we're experiencing. Um, I think of, of, of course, Alma 32 and the way that I just want to read some of these words that Alma uses as he describes these experiences that we can have as we essentially do and test. That's what he's talking about in Alma 32 is this experiment or this, um, experience. What do you say? Experience? (laughs) Experiment? (laughs) But how he explains it is, um... It begins to enlarge your soul or enlighten your understanding. It beginneth to be delicious to me. Um, Now behold, would that not increase your faith? He says, I say unto you, yea, nevertheless, it hath not grown up to be a perfect knowledge. Hey, so maybe he's even saying, it's okay if it's not a perfect knowledge. That's not what we're going for. But maybe we are going for some of these really cool things like feeling enlightened, and understanding something that we didn't know before. Um, and I love the way that he talks about it as a seed. Because what a cool thing of this. I'm experimenting with this seed in this case. Or this principle. Or this truth. And he explains it as a seed that swelleth and sprouteth. And beginneth to grow. And that you'll know that the seed is good. Because of these feelings that you have. Um, yea, it will strengthen your faith. For you will say... I know that it is a good seed, for behold, it sprouteth and beginneth to grow. Well, what's interesting there is the word know that you just read in that verse. Notice what he's saying he knows. I know that the seed is good because it's growing. I did something, it worked, and therefore I know that the seed I planted is a good seed. Um, And if that's where Alma ended, then we could conclude that, yeah, knowing is the end result. But that's not where he ends the experiment. The rest of the experiment, you don't experiment on a seed to find out if the seed is good. You plant a seed so that you can have a tree. And so then Alma talks about you're not laying aside your faith. You need to continue to nourish the tree with care so that it can grow. So that when you get to verse 42, because of your diligence and your faith and your patience, because you've nourished it, behold, you can pluck the fruit thereof, which is most precious, which is sweet, white above all that is white, pure above all that is pure, and feast upon the fruit even until you are filled. And so knowledge is a part of this process, but it's a really small part compared to the planting uh, and the nourishing and the care and the faith and the diligence and everything that goes into growing this tree. And even when the tree is there, the words that are used to describe it isn't, I know that this is a tree or I know that it's a good tree. It's this tree is precious. This fruit is sweet. It's white. It's pure. I'm feasting upon it and it fills my soul. And every time I read Alma 32, I think we have to expand the language we use to describe our experience with God. Uh, There's nothing, of course, at all wrong with expressing testimony using the word know, but that connotes to anyone else that's maybe not familiar with the the internal jargon of of our church that sends a message that our primary focus is on intellectually conceptualizing and understanding the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's so much richer and broader than that. 
And our experience is so much more nuanced than that. We're not divided into an either I know or I don't know camp. There are many of us that know, or there are many of us that maybe don't know a gospel principle is true, but we feel that it's true, or I hope that it's true. There are people that choose to follow something even though they don't know that it's true. There's someone that trusts even though they might only believe. There's someone that used to know but doesn't know anymore and maybe is wondering or doubting, but they still think that it's good and they want to do it. And we need a language to describe that. And I think Alma 32 and many other places, as you said, uh, give us a place to describe our experience in in something that's much larger and much more nuanced than just saying, I know that this is true or not. So in answer to our question, do I have to know the church is true? Because at first you said, well, <laughs> we didn't want to say yes or no to that question because what I want to say is no, we don't have to know the church is true in that language. But I think that these three, I won't even call them answers to this question, but maybe um, what would you call it, Zach? Studies to this question? No, just considerations. I, I think, considerations. I like that. Yes. I, I think the answer to the question is, sure, yeah, we should know that gospel principles are true. That's not the beginning of our experience, and it's certainly not the end of our experience. Coming to know that a gospel principle is true is a small part of a much larger process of growth and discipleship, and ultimately coming to know in an intimate way, the Savior Jesus Christ and who he is. And maybe that's part of why this statement really hasn't sat well with me, is if we go back to our study from last month, that idea of perfectionism, almost like like you're saying, you felt overwhelmed as a teenager hearing people saying that, like, oh, I'm not there, and I don't know how to get there. Um, it's kind of like our last study of do I need to be perfect, the idea of thinking that I have to know the church is true makes it feel like almost that perfectionist attitude that we talked about last week. In fact, I think maybe the best answer to the question that I can think of comes from the Savior's intercessory prayer in John chapter 17. He says, uh, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy son, as thy son may also glorify thee, as thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And then he explains what eternal life is. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. The word know there is not, the, the Greek word gnosko, is not an intellectual comprehension. This is not the Savior saying eternal life means to know all of the ins and outs, the ups and downs, the numbers and the facts of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The word know, though, means an intimate familiarity with. Eternal life means to be familiar with God and Jesus Christ. To the answer that the disciples asked in the boat, what manner of man is this? Eternal life is knowing the answer to that question because you've spent time with him as a disciple. You've followed him. You've done what he asked you to do, not perfectly, of course, but in that experimentation of doing what he's taught and emulating what he's done, you have come to know him, 
not just gain information about him and not just feel the confirmation of the spirit within you. Uh, you've come to be, become really familiar with him. Uh, and on the way, you have made yourself into someone different or he's made you into someone different and you have made the world around you something different. In the words of C.S. Lewis, God became man to turn creatures into sons, not simply to produce better men of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of man. So the next time you have the opportunity to, well, this week or this month as you study these scriptures and you think about your own testimony, what you come to know through witnessing the miracles of the Savior, um, first, think about not just what you come to know or believe, but what you sense can be done, what you sense should be done. Uh, Pay attention to what God is doing to and through you, and hopefully, have an expanded sense of what what discipleship means and that it's much larger than maybe we we often think that it is thank you so much for studying with us Uh, we hope that this begins a great study for you and it yields fruit and insight and revelation we will be back next month with another question take care